What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another week and another episode of Unscripted, where we bring you professionals from all walks of life. We touch on their backstory, their mindset, and how they navigate through adversity and opposition. I'm your host, Akeem Haynes. Before we get into this week's episode and I introduce my special guest, do us a huge favor. Head over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes or Charitable.com and leave a rating and review of the show. This small act goes a long way in moving the podcast forward. This week on the show, I'm joined by a five-time Olympian, four on the summer side with track and field, and one on the winter side with two-man bobsled. I'm talking about 1996 Olympic gold medalist, two-time world champion, 1995 Pan Am gold medalist in the 100 meters, and 2008 Canadian Sports Hall of Fame inductee and current head coach of Athletics Canada, Glenroy Gilbert. I've been known Glenroy since 2012. That was the first year I made my first senior team in track and field and my first Olympic Games. In 2016, he was my relay coach on that team that won the bronze medal and actually broke his squad's previous Canadian record in the men's 4x1. And our record still stands to this day. That's a little inside joke as the episode continues, you will see, right? I asked Glenroy, if we were to go head-to-head between my squad and his squad, who would get the victory? And he is doubling down on his squad, which is okay. But anyway, throughout this conversation, um, if you know Glenroy, then you get to see him from a different light. You know, when you see him, he's got his glasses on, he's always focused, he has a job to do. But in this conversation, um, as it went on, you know, I actually had more questions to ask. In this episode, We talk about his upbringing, the migration from Trinidad to Canada with his mom and his siblings, lessons he learned from his mother, his time at LSU, how he balanced his success at the 1996 Olympic Games while on the other side battling one of the toughest times in his life away from the track. We talk about his faith and what he hopes to instill in his kids every single day. There's a particular story towards the end of this episode where Glenroy went to visit his mother with his daughter and he shares something with us. He shares something with his daughter that I think will serve as a great reminder for all of us. Uh, In this episode, you know, you will hopefully see G. Glenroy in a different light. He let his guard down a little bit and share some of that great wisdom that he's learned from the journey that he's traveled to get to where he is today. I really enjoyed this episode, and I really believe that you will too. So without further ado, enjoy this week's episode with Glenroy Gilbert. It's all good, but man, thank you so much for coming on. I want to be respectful of your time, and I have a bunch of stuff to get into today. It's going to be a little bit of a road down memory road for you, but the first question I want to ask you, well, the Olympics is still is still in our minds. It's still not too long ago. But I want to go back before the games that were canceled in 2020, right? The pandemic game, so to speak. Uh, you being the head coach now, G, there's a lot of moving parts that you have to handle. Yeah. How did you navigate through that? But I want to give get your perspective from two different parts. One, family first, right? You're still hearing about the COVID-19, you got to be able to protect your family and give them as much information as you have. But also you have a team depending on you for leadership as to what to go about next. How do we move to the next decision? How did you navigate through that whole situation as a whole? Well, you know what? And and that's a great question because for me, right from the start, uh, health was, um, right up front. It was the most important thing, just not just my own health, but the health of the athletes, the health of my kids, uh, just making sure that the, the decisions that I make, think about the ramifications that they will have. And and for me, obviously, I think the decision to postpone the games at the time that they, they made, it was the right decision. Uh, and I think communicating that back to the athletes, um, maybe the timing itself wasn't the greatest, but, you know, athletes are in a lot of ways, they just want to get over there, they just wanted the games to happen. Uh, the impact of the postponement, of course, had 
um, an impact on a lot of athletes. Uh, some athletes didn't end up uh, either end up retiring just because they they had that extra year tacked on. But when I when you look at the overall impact of the games from a health perspective, I didn't want to travel. I didn't want athletes traveling. We were trying everything we can to really give as much information around, uh, you know, the pandemic and, and around uh, the coronavirus as we could to the athletes. And of course, to the staff and to ourselves, just making sure that we were taking care of our health and putting your health first, because um, at the end of the day, we this is still a sport. It's not, uh, we're not certainly not curing cancer or anything <laughs> of that nature. So you really have to, I think, approach it with in those type of uh, lenses. When you got there, G, you know the media is saying a whole bunch of things, right? They were saying a whole lot of things in 2016, especially with the Zika virus and all of that stuff as well, too. Um, obviously I haven't been too far removed from it. So I still have a lot of people who are at the games, but that's their perspective. You know, they tell me one side of it, but you got to look at things as the whole spectrum. When you actually got to the games, G, what was different and what was things that you were like, wait a minute, that's not, that's not that serious. And I want to ask this G because I was asked this a lot too. Do you think not having the fans there made a big of an impact as people were saying, because I know if it's me and you, you want the team to just be there so you can focus. Right? So what, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I'll tell you one thing from the moment we landed in Tokyo, it was different. We spent about eight hours in the airport, just getting processed. And it was something completely different. It was not anything we were, we were prepared for it. We weren't prepared for eight hours. We were certainly prepared for like four to five hours in the airport because we had a an advanced team go ahead of the main group and they were kind of reporting back so we could prepare the athletes before they boarded the flight to Tokyo. So from that perspective, the, the whole piece in getting to our holding camp in Gifu was long and arduous, but the athletes, you know what? Nobody complained about anything because again, they were, they were kind of, um, warned about this type of thing happening and just so everyone just kind of took it in stride for the most part uh, with regards to the the actual competition in Tokyo I felt you know they did such a remarkable job I think with the event and the way they uh, they they hosted the entire thing that not having fans in the in the stands really as far as I'm concerned didn't have a huge impact now the athletes that are out there competing will obviously tell you some of them will say you know what we missed the fans we would have loved to have had them and I think that that's fair however the the um the depth or um the type of competition that we ended up having was I think no less um you didn't nothing was taken away from it um because there were no fans there Okay, and for me personally, I mean, I think a full stadium, obviously, athletes want to run in front of uh, a, a packed stadium, but I think the, the level of performance was still very, very high. And I mean, you think back to, you know, the four hurdles or Andre's 200 meters. Listen, those are remarkable performances. <laughs> yeah. And those would have been, I think they would have been as, as fast, as remarkable, whether you had, you know, clearly, if you had like 50,000 people in the stands or not. So, I think as far as I'm concerned, the games went off really well. Um, all the mitigation that they put around, uh, you know, the the, vi the coronavirus and, and what athletes and, and staff were allowed to do was perfect. Everyone kind of adhered to that. And, and the results spoke for themselves. In the height of everything, G, you know, you have to get up, kind of get up at a certain time and make sure that everybody's on track. How do you find balance among all of this? Right. Because everything kind of flows, flows through you. Maybe someone has to protest certain things or whatever the case may be. But, man, it can, it can be a lot for any person, even though you've been to a bunch of games yourself. Right. How do you find balance amongst all of this? Well, balance for me is always just, you know, taking the time for myself, like early in the mornings and just kind of recalibrating, remembering that, again, we're doing something that we're enjoying and that, and that yes, it, we've got an amazing staff of uh, team managers. We have amazing staff of coaches on the ground to deal with all the event groups. So really, it's just, a, it's just really about tying all those pieces together, but making sure that I am delivering an, um, 
amount of calm. Like you don't want, you certainly don't want to be hysterical about the situation. We know what the situation is. We don't have to wear it every single day that we go out there. We, we get up every morning and go, okay, make sure we hit all the checkpoints in order to get the athletes and staff out to the track to compete. Again, we try to make it all about the athletes and simply not, it's not about, it's not about us. It's, it's about doing our, the very best job we possibly can to ensure a safe uh, environment for the athletes to get out there and perform. But you also have to take the time either in the mornings before things get crazy or in the evenings just to really recalibrate and make sure that you're taking care of yourself as well. G, one last question before we get into uh, the athlete side of you. <laughs> as, as a coach, a head coach in this position, right, um, organizations, you know, their leaders, different companies, you're put with a lot of pressure, right? Pressure situations, people are handling certain contracts. Maybe you're about to try to close on a deal and you're, you don't know, or you don't feel comfortable with handling all this pressure. If someone is in a position, G, where they don't know how to deal with the pressure, right? What are some tips that you would give them that has helped you when it comes to that? In a lot of ways, for me, the pressure is you've got to slow it down. You just can't get caught up in the, the, um, the pace of what's happening. You've got to slow it down within yourself and, and take the necessary time in between the pause, if you will. Um, I'm a big believer in uh, stillness and really taking time to really um, recognize that if you get it's easy to get on this this conveyor belt that we call like high performance sport and then lose yourself in there um from time to time you may need to just jump off and and walk just take take your time with every single process and by doing that i think you you find a way to really mitigate the pressure involved it we can't get around it it's a pressure situation the pressure really is on, it's on the athletes. As far as I'm concerned, yes, as coaches, we have pressure because we want to see the performance. We've got, we've got uh, funding partners that want to see performance as well. But ultimately, if we don't create an environment to where the personal coaches and athletes feel supported and feel that they have everything that they need to put that athlete on a podium or put that athlete in a top eight position or put that athlete in a position to get a, a personal best at the Olympic Games, then we're not, we're not doing our job. And ultimately, if we're not doing our job, we're not going to get the results and the athletes won't perform the way we want them to perform. So a lot of ways we have to be able to, to separate what is, what's real uh, pressure and what's kind of manufactured pressure. What is stuff that we're kind of creating for ourselves versus what's really there? And, and I think when we, when we figure those two pieces out, then we can act accordingly. That's good. That's good. Again, I think everybody deals with pressure, big, small, whatever the case may be. Even three-year-old kids deal with pressure in some capacity. Yeah, exactly. Right? But, uh, gee, I want to go back, man, because to this day, I don't think many people understand and realize that you're originally from Trinidad. You know, <laughs> Trinidad and Tobago. You know, people see you as from, he's from Ottawa through and through. But originally from Trinidad, um, what was those times like growing up for you, G? And <laughs> you got to give me some content because I always get in trouble with uh, which one has the better beaches, right? Because I understand yeah, yeah, yeah. one is a beach and the other is just not. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, the context, you know, I came to Canada really um, so about five, five or six years old and, um, you know, right from Port of Spain, which is the capital city in Trinidad. Um, and, you know, when we came to Canada, it was it was like the early 70s. And my mom came up here because my grandmother was here. And and this was obviously an opportunity to have a better future, a better mm -hmm. life for her kids. And, I, you know, I come from a fairly uh, family of uh, six kids. And so this was an opportunity for us to kind of get a bit of a leg up um, um, in Canada. I mean, really, it, it really came down to... You know, if we stayed in, in Trinidad, we'd kind of follow the trend of a lot of the Caribbean um, uh, folks. And, and then there were no opportunities, no opportunities for my mom. So being up here, obviously, and I've been in Ottawa since that time. So, yeah, if, I mean, people looking at me would certainly think that, uh, <laughs> you know, I was born and raised right here in Ottawa. But, but, but no, uh, Trinidad and Tobago and the south part of the island. And I would argue the beaches, I would say probably, I mean... I've been to the beaches in Trinidad and I, I feel like 
I have to be honest, and I think the beaches in Jamaica are far better. <laughs> I really do. But oh, you're anyway. gonna cause a lot of beef with but, this one, G. I know the Trinities are gonna, you know, you know, off with my head, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you know, when you came to Canada, G, you know, a lot of principles that we have as as people come from our foundation, from our parents, grandparents, guardians, neighborhood even. What are some things that 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 your mom and your grandmother instilled in you? Um, maybe it was something that they said that stuck with you to this day. Because sometimes I know for me growing up, you know, my 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 grandparents would say something like hard work pays off or, you know, if you're patient enough in time, it will come. But as a four or five year old kid, you're like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. What 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 are some things that helped you build your principles that maybe your uh, mom, grandmother, instilled in you or maybe you saw indirectly well it's funny my mom my mom is obviously uh, you know like my biggest hero in terms of watching her the way she lived her life and the ability to to really um help her kids uh the way she did and but my mom has always been a very spiritual woman so i grew up in the church from the time i could remember and so your lessons learned in Sunday school and those type of things on how to treat people, the type of life you'd want to live, uh, your best life in a sense, and and having empathy. Like my mom was always, you know what, Glenora, it doesn't matter. You know, obviously we want you to make us proud. We want you to do your very best, but the principles of honesty, empathy, treat people with compassion, you know, take a second to reflect before you, even if you say something that you shouldn't say, make sure you go back and apologize. Always, always really thinking about things more from a spiritual realm than really from, from the way you would, you would automatically react to a situation. So my mom has always been, even to this day, I mean, the person that uh, if I have an issue, you know, a lot of times I'm thinking, ah, well, she's not going to be able to help me with something like this. What does she know about, you know, what does she know about Olympic sports? But then I go and I, I talk about the situation with her. And, you know, the little nuances of, of information that you get, you're like, wow, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's amazing. So it's always been, my mom has always been kind of like my rock around a lot of those things. And, and she, you know, it's funny. I think as, as adults, we sometimes don't give our parents the credit yes. that they deserve. Um, because we're thinking that no way they would have experienced anything remotely close to this, you know, but maybe not in particular to that particular situation, but something similar. And the messaging is still the same. It doesn't change. Right. So, um, so I've learned that. And I've, I've also, the other thing my mother always said to me was, I never worry about you because I know you're, I know you're going to be, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. Always. I never, I worry about your brothers and sisters. (laughs) But I don't. <laughs> but I don't worry about you. So I kind of try to live up to that, right? That is such a powerful testament because you know, as Caribbean parents, you know, they always gonna worry. But for her to yeah. say that, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the transition, G. You know, for me, it was tough, right? Coming from Jamaica to, I mean, you went to Ottawa. I went to Yellowknife. You know, the weather was a little <laughs> bit different. But you know, seeing different cultures, seeing. First of all, I saw dogs in houses. That was never a thing in Jamaica, so I didn't understand that part. But the weather, the people, the culture, and all of these things, it took me a while to get used to. You know, I went from a place where there was many Black kids in the area to go into a school where I was maybe one of four inside the school, and those rest was my cousins, right? Okay. So what, what was that transition like for you, G? Did you, did you have any issues... Um, there for you learning learn, learning a new language because even though Trinidad and Tobago they speak broken English in a way it's different as well too so what what was that transition like for you did you have an easy time with it or did it take time no you know what it took it took time I remember being in um in elementary school and uh, the first probably week in school the teacher told me straight up she's like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to speak English clearly uh what I was speaking was not English and I'm, you're going to have to speak English because nobody can nobody can understand you. Um, we came to I remember we came to Canada in August and the month of August. And I remember I, I thought it was great because it was still relatively warm. There was no change. But then when the cold weather hit, 
I, where I went to school in Ottawa it was like walking distance to the apartment we lived in. It was maybe 15 minutes from the apartment to the school. And I remember the first time I saw snow and it started snowing and we had to walk home. And I was just like, what the heck? I, I, I don't, I can't, I can't, what is this? What's going on? My mother had to leave because she'd look out the balcony to see us coming, walking home. She had to leave the building to come and walk us the rest of the way because I was just, I was frozen. I couldn't move. I didn't know what was going on. The whole, the whole concept of cold snow. Okay. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't advancing in school because again, my, my language wasn't what, you know, was expected. So I, I think at the time when we came to Canada, it wasn't, it was an unforgiving time for, um, for black kids, because again, I think, especially in Ottawa here, the schools, every school I went to from elementary school, right up to high school, well, high school was a bit better, but uh, right up from grade one up to grade eight, we were typically, my family was the only black family in, in the school. So, you know, again, you navigate those things. And then, then of course, you end up going down to a place like Louisiana State for university, and then it's a complete opposite, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there are a lot of learnings. There's a lot of, uh, of course, the cultural shift was immense. And it was about trying to get your footing the best way you could, right? Adapt to the situation. And that's essentially what we had to do. You had to learn to speak the language, in essence, here in Ottawa. And that's why my, my kids now, even though I don't speak French, they're both, they're in French school. Because again, setting yourself up for success is part of understanding where you are and what the requirements are to function at a high level where you are. It's funny you say that, G, because I had, I had, I missed 64 days of school. I couldn't handle the cold. My mom was, my mom was late coming home from work one day by 10 minutes. And I caught frostbite in my left ear, right? So it was all, all, all bad. So I definitely get that. Yeah, but you, yeah. you and I have something in common, man. We, um, we played soccer early, right? And, and, and to this day, I, I still think I was a better soccer player than I was track and field athlete and football player. Like it was, you know, I, it was very, I, t- I took it seriously. And all mm-hmm. the, my cousins were older than me. So I had to get better because I always yeah. played with the older kids. But for you, you didn't stick with soccer, you know, you know, you didn't yeah. stick with it. I, what, you what, know what? I should have. I should have. If you look at soccer, what soccer is today and what soccer was when I was uh, 14, 15 years old is completely different. I mean, soccer is a bigger game. It's like you can actually get somewhere in the sport, um, whereas you couldn't do it back when I was doing it. And, and you know, I suffered a disappointment, I think, in when I was 15, 16. And I was getting you know, everyone in soccer is like, wow, you're so fast. You, you ever think about track? And of course you get, you get intoxicated by all the positive reinforcements. And the next thing you know, you're running track, you know? So, um, and I, I'm with you. I don't know. I think I would have, I, I certainly preferred track and field. And I'll tell you why, because in soccer, I always had this mentality that I worked much harder than everyone else. And if everyone worked at the same level that I worked at, then I would have been fine on the team. But I always struggled with that team aspect just because I didn't think people took it as seriously as I did, nor did they work as hard and were they as invested as I was in the outcome. And I, after a while, I mean, I played soccer relatively young and I was starting to get really frustrated with the level of, um, with the level of focus that the other athletes were putting into it, it just wasn't up to up to my uh, standards. And so when in so when I went to track and field, you know the buck stopped with me. Whatever happened, it was on me. I couldn't blame no one. I you know I can't blame my coaches. It's me. I didn't perform the way I was supposed to. So I preferred that. Gee, when you got to high school, you know, when you you eventually attended LSU, Louisiana State University, right? But what was that? part like right like the process of figuring out like i can further myself here right that's one aspect of it um but you also have to convince your mom like mom like this is going to be okay if you let me go down there because again you know mom wants to make sure that all of the kids are in the same house and if you go down there i don't i don't know that coach i don't trust that coach i don't know what they have going on um so i want to just touch on that g but also you know decision making right i always felt like a lot of athletes don't have necessary information that they need to make a calculated decision, but they're just making it because of the name. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the big name school may not be the best of where you should go. And it's conducive for your progression as an athlete. 
So what was that time like for you? And, and, and even what made you even pick LSU? Yeah. Well, I didn't pick LSU right out of the gates. To be honest with you, I actually went to uh, Iowa State in Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, actually in Ames, Iowa. Mm -hmm. Very, very small town. So I was at Iowa State for probably four months. And uh, the decision to go there, the coach came up to Ottawa, talked to my mom. We talked about the academics and all those things. My mom was happy with it. And then, of course, when I got down there, it was something completely different. Um, and I couldn't, I, I knew my mom would just, I mean, she would have my head if I didn't, uh, you know, if I wasn't taking the level of uh, academics that was agreed upon, then she didn't want me there. So after a few, after like three months, I was like, look, I don't like, I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like these courses. This is not what I wanted to do. So I had a conversation with her, went back home, ended up um, enrolling at Ottawa U. And it was only after that, I think a year after uh, being at Ottawa U, I went down to a training camp at LSU and the coach right then and there offered me a scholarship to be down there. But it was a completely, the difference between going to Iowa, going to Ottawa U and then ending up at um, LSU was maturity. I think mm -hmm. time had passed and I was, I was better prepared by the time I got to LSU than I was the two universities before that. So my time at LSU was then very seamless. And I think around the decision to, to go down there, it was, it was simply, you know, they say it takes a village in a lot of ways to raise, to raise kids. I had some really good, uh, you know, elementary school teachers, high school teachers that I stayed connected to. And these, these are my, the, the, the source of inspiration, the source of knowledge, the source of direction for me. The people that are looking out for you, people that are saying, hey, look, um, and people that you can almost, you can use as a sounding board with ideas that you had. And so it's, it's pulling it all together and then making the, the right decision at the time. And I'm not saying the decision will always be the right decision. It wasn't the right decision for me to go to Iowa State. It was the right decision for me to come home and spend an extra year at home going to Ottawa U. And then it was the right decision at the time to go to LSU. So sometimes these decisions come about in a roundabout way it's not always a direct um, path to the decision. So sometimes you've got to go a mm -hmm. bit uh, a bit circular in a sense to get there. But the fact is you're getting there. And that's what's important. And I'll tell you, for me, being at LSU at the time that I was there was perfect. I didn't get the, four, the full four years. I ended up with three years, but it was the right time. And it was the best experience of my life. G, you got there and then, you know, you can sort of say the legend of Glenroy Gilbert began because you didn't go there predominantly as a sprinter, mm -hmm. right? Um, speaking to your former coach, Dan, it was a certain injury that happened that made you transition over to sprinting. What was your time at LSU like, G? And you've always been a person who works hard. You've always been disciplined. You've always been dedicated. But now you get to an NCAA system where even though you may have more dedication and more discipline than all the other athletes there are some guys who are just extremely talented they can bypass that what was that experience like because in the sec you have to bring your a game every single week because if you don't yeah, your scholarship is, is on the line <laughs> well you would know you certainly know about that right you know about the sec it's no joke <laughs> i mean <laughs> Listen, when I got down to when I got down to LSU, it was an eye opener for me. I remember the the oh, I landed in January, and I think at the end of February, early March, we were getting ready for the conference meet, and we went to Florida State or no University of Florida for the uh, the conference meet, and I was just like, yeah, you know, I, I had been to the Olympics, you know, I was I was seasoned. I this was nothing for me, and I'm telling you, I got to that competition, and I'm sure I'm sure Akeem did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has tipped his hat here. It probably told you all about it. It was horrible. It was the most, to say it was eye-opening is an understatement. I, I certainly at that moment recognized that A, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And B, these athletes here in the US, especially in the SEC conference, they don't play around. I mean, they come to win. I mean, winning is all, winning at all costs is what they live for. I mean, I had young guys. I was probably two years older than most of the guys. And I had these young guys, 18, 17 years old, just, just blowing my doors off. And I didn't even, I didn't even know what I got myself into. I was just, I remember getting, getting back to, getting back to my dorm room in Baton Rouge after the, the conference meet. And I had to sit and ponder, 
Like what, what have I, what have I, how am I going to navigate all of this? <laughs> right. It was just, I mean, I have to get ready for, I'm going to meet the con I'm going to go to the conference meet outdoors. So what, what's that going to be like? So my thinking, my approach, everything had to get a, re a reset because I knew that there was no possible way I could be successful if I went in there with the same mentality that, yeah, I've been to the Olympics. I competed at my Olympic Games and, and I'm more than ready for this. It's only an SEC. No. So I, I had to really change my uh, my focus, my thinking and start studying the athletes that I trained with because mm. they they were they were on a different level. So I if I was going to be successful, I had to get on that level as well. Gee, how 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 didn't that humble ego uh dismantle you can say help you right because sometimes people get in a position where they have that same thought because i thought the same thing i'm like man these guys are different right i remember i was i remember at, at my junior college alone you know i was i was number two in north america in the one and the two you know then coming down there and i was the fifth versus person fastest person on my team and I had to sit with that in my dorm one day. And I said, okay, Akeem, what are you going to do now? But a lot of athletes, gee, they get to certain positions and they see that and they don't want no parts of it. So how did you reshift and recalibrate your mind to say, okay, how can I one even the playing field and how can I may even get an edge? But that also requires you to let your ego go because again, you've been to a games, right? A lot of your team has haven't been to any games yet but it's different. How, how do you handle the ego in that, in that moment? Well, again, ego was the one thing that I had a lot of, I think um, when I was in university and I, I was at LSU, but when you're, when you're in a university program, like, like LSU, where, you know, talent is just like overflowing, like every, every, these guys were so talented. And I, I started taking stock of where exactly do I fit in the hierarchy of the athletes that Dan had, for example, and I was near the bottom, hands down, I was near the bottom. And I, I had to, it took me probably a good year to adjust to where I was, to adjust to the fact that I wasn't the best guy. Like I said, I'd, I'd made the Olympic team. I was number one in Canada and long jump. I'd done all those things, but here I was in the U S and I was training with a bunch of guys where I was probably fifth on the depth chart in terms of talent. So the idea is exactly what you said, Akeem, is, is sitting and, and thinking to yourself, how, A, how important is it for you to be successful here? And then figuring out what it is you need to do. And that requires a shift in the mentality that you take every single day that you go out to the track. Like, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to adapt? I was used to having my own coach, as, as most people in Canada are. They have their own personal coach and they work along. You go to the U.S., you're one of, like Dan had, I think, 15 guys on the runway uh, on Tuesday and Thursdays when we were doing jump work. And so he would send me off to go do something on my own. So you had, that was a shift for me. So ad adaptation and being flexible and adaptable to, to the situation is what you have to start to, to get used to. Because if you, if, you, if you have this fixed mindset, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble and you're going to suffer disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. So learning from experiences that present themselves. So, I mean, it wasn't like the next meet I was stellar because I was still horrible. <laughs> I was still horrible. So it took me some time to get my footing, but I also believed at the time that I could be I could be better than I was. And as long as you, you're striving to be better, as long as you're, you, I, I always measured myself up against the American athletes because it was to me, the pinnacle of our sport was to be, if you can get to an SEC or get to an NCAA and win medals, then you're, you're, you're one of the best track athletes out there. So for me, it was always that. And that took me some time, but again, I had to drop a lot of the ego. I had to drop a lot of the expectations that I had of myself and kind of reshape it and, and have an incremental approach to getting back to, an, to a level where, okay, now I know I can compete with these guys. So it, took, it did take some time. And that's probably about a year of, uh, of adapting to, to, to where I was, to the new coaching, to the new training environment, to the training group, and accepting that you're not starting at the top, but you've got to start from the bottom and work your way up. Dan uh, was telling me about that same thing. He was like, I used to have 15 athletes on the runway and I would just look, watch, look, watch, walk down, walk down. 
but Dan speaks very highly of you, G. He credits you for being one of the first Canadians to actually come down there to train. And then more other Canadians started to come down, you know, Donovan, some others. Uh, but he would always used to tell me about some of your training days, right? I had heard some of these legendary stories. I heard one day you guys had something like 30 something block starts. Now, you know, I don't know how much the story has stretched, yeah, yeah. but G, you know that the environment impacts you a whole deal and it makes you better. Um, before you got to the 96 games and the gold medal came, um, 92, you guys won gold in the four by one, but now you're starting to see some of the timing start to come back in your favor, all the sacrifices there. But what were those training days like? Because your training group, from what I understand, from what I've been told, you had some, some mega stars in there from all different parts of the country. So what was that like? And what were some of those challenges? Like, what was those, is that black story? story yeah. true g like you guys you got to give me the backstory on these because when i hear this i'm like no way these athletes nowadays including myself would have been able to handle that much volume of training well i'll tell you one thing coach path um i mean the guy i mean he he cut his teeth on a lot of us in terms of um what what volume of work can you humanly do and still and still be productive on the other end of it? Uh, yeah, we would have starts, you know, start days anywhere from 15 to 18 block starts. And I, I'm one of those guys that 15, okay, I'm going to 18. Donovan, on the other hand, is 15, okay, I'm going to do eight. <laughs> you know, so, so you, you, you really have, you had your, your varying types of athletes. And I think in our group, we had Oba, we had Kareem, we had we had a lot of sub ten. I think at one point we had about five guys that were had run under under ten seconds, and um, our group was a very powerful group. And again, with all varying personalities as well. So, you know, you learn to work in in the situation that you're in, but you also learn to use the the guys around you to help you get better, right? So, yeah, it was it was tough. Dan was Dan Dan was actually a very um, empathetic coach i think he, mm. he recognized that not everyone was at the same level not everyone like people had different strengths you know you know my my work capacity was one thing i would i would do it until i dropped whereas you'd have a guy like like donovan or oba oba who would stay in his flats and never put spikes on until probably he was getting ready to race so you had different and dan did a really good job of uh navigating and and kind of juggling all the different personalities and that's what that's what track and field and sprinting is about is is working with all those different people right so i mean it was it was tough but at the same time let me tell you something it 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 prepared me for everything that came after that mm. um you know our our two uh, world championship uh, goals on the Olympic, the Olympic gold medal in 96, all of it was because of all that work that we did in the lead up. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes Dan has a way of uh, making his stories a bit grander than, but I think that happens in time because I find myself doing the same thing. Right? So, so um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a remarkable time and, and, and a great, great group of sprinters. And that's the one thing I'll say about Dan was, he was a coach for the athletes. Like really everything he did was for um, the group that he had in Baton Rouge because we moved from Baton Rouge, I think, in 1995 to Austin, Texas for the next five years. So uh, he was that type of coach. Gee, as, as, as a man, right, you know, we want to progress in different areas of our lives. And I've always been one. I didn't just want to be, you know, Akeem the athlete because that's a, such a small part of a person's life. But as a man now, from Trinidad coming to Canada, you were already in the U.S., then you went back home, then you came back. Uh, how were you progressing yourself, right? Like your personal development and your mental space. Who was G the person at this time, right? What, what, what were some things that you were really trying to grow? Because, you know, we are all more than just what we do. Right? That's a small portion of it. But so many times we're consumed by what we do. We think that's all we ever are. So in this stage, in this moment, what, what, what was that like for you? How were you finding room for your own personal development? You know what? I'll tell you one thing. As an athlete, I was one person. I certainly was. And, I, and, and um, 
and now even kind of growing out of the the athlete the athletic role at over 20 years ago now and every it's almost like every day i'm finding more and more um to where empathy is a big part and and a big part of what i believe in i didn't i didn't have much of that as an athlete i i mm-hmm. certainly have a hell of a lot more as a coach and more of a person who is around a lot of young people, a lot of people trying to find their footing. And I think for me, understanding and and really not judging certain situations, really helping and finding ways to really meet people halfway or to understand and not to take things personal. I there was a time if someone said something to me, of course it would be a personal attack on me and who I don't I try I don't do I don't do well with those things anymore. In fact, I've put a lot of those things away. And I just, I try to listen more. I try to listen more rather than to try to give people solutions. I will listen. You'll, you'll, and when you, when you talk to me, you're going to get, you're going to get authenticity. You're going to get honesty. And I'm not going to come in because I think the role that I'm in now as a coach and then as a parent um, of two, of two young girls. And then of course, as a son to my, my mom, who's, who's uh, getting older, you, you have to have a, you cannot be that same person you were as an athlete. So I'm learning more and more about myself, I think, in like every year, every moment. Um, and a lot of it has to do with just being compassionate, mm-hmm. being compassionate, being understanding, taking the time. Don't take, the, don't take anything for granted. Don't take it for granted. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll, you know, I'll give you a quick story. The other day I was with my daughter, Sadie, and I was saying to her, we pull up to my mom. My mom literally lives about a minute away from me. So we pull up to her house and Sadie sits in the car and I get out and I go up. And then halfway up to her house, I stopped and I turned around and I looked at Sadie and I said, and said, get out of the car and come up here and, uh, and say hello to your grandmother. And in that moment, it dawned, and this is how these lessons kind of come to me. In that moment, I said to her, never take for granted that you're going to see her tomorrow or you're going to be able to see her later. Get out of the car now because you're here now and come and say hello. Even if it's a brief 30 seconds, hey, mom, how are you? Good. And get back in the car. But take that time because tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us and we shouldn't plan on having things go our way then. Just take the time, every step to be as conscious as you can be in the moment, like live in the moment. A lot of times that's that's what I've been doing more and more now. And instead of living in the past or living too far in the future. I live right here, right now. And that's, you know, this conversation that we're having, I'm into this conversation. I'm not thinking about what I have to do an hour from now because it's point, it's, it's useless to me. You, you have authentic relationships when you just focus in that time that you're there with that person. Man, gee, this question just came to mind as you were talking about your daughter. Um, you said you have two your parent, your, your mom instilled some things in you. What, what are some things, G, that, that you try to instill in your daughters and you hope that they take? Because we never know what they may take or, or what they may not take. But what are some things that you maybe intentionally try to do to instill in them so maybe they'll get it at some point down their road when they're ready to? Well, the big piece for me is family. Like I, I, I tell them, you know what? You'll have a lot of close friends. You'll have a lot of close relationships but your family, you've got to make time. And everything I do with them is around family. I know they have their friends and that's all, that's all good, but make time for your family. Don't, don't take for granted that you're going to see them every, birthdays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all we, it doesn't matter how big, it could be just, just five of us here, six of us here, but we make time for family, make time for family, be honest and transparent with who you are with your friends. Don't, again, use your own common sense. Use your own. Don't let, don't let your friends, and I'm pretty sure you've heard this from your mother, you know, let your friends lead you down uh, a <laughs> road, lead you astray. We've all been, <laughs> that's been, I, you pass some of that on, maybe, maybe less impactful as my mom did it to me, but, you know, all the lessons and all the things that I learned from my mom, you know, like spirituality as well. Like, yes. you know, make sure my kids, my kids are understand that, there is there's something bigger than 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 them, bigger than me, bigger than than what we are right now in this moment. So understand that part of um, of humanity and and who they are as part of humanity. So every 
there's there are always teachable moments like for my kids and I try to to be in that moment so that I can educate them of the situation. So again, I, I, I compassion, being honest, you know, have empathy. Don't don't preach, don't judge. Try not to. We we do that so easily. It's like don't judge people. Wait to wait to hear them you, you, because what you're probably going to judge on something that you don't even understand. There's a backstory. There's something there's something that proceed preceded this position that they're in. So take time and really build meaningful relationships with folks. And the way you do that is making sure that you're present when you're talking to them and being with them. That's powerful, G. Thanks for that. That's a great reminder for, for all of us. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I always want to show the backstory and more in the person um, rather than just what people know, right? They know about the 1996 Olympics. So we're going to touch on that before we get into the last couple of questions. Right. But that's the stuff that people don't see, you know, the progress and the growth of the person over time. Uh, but in 1996, G, yeah, you guys know you got the gold medal. Uh, but from what I understand, based on conversations I've had with Donovan and a few others, that was a tough time for you. You know, you were also going through some through some things away from the track. Yeah. Right. How. What was going into those games like for you? And how did you handle the balance of some of the personal stuff that you were having, right? To, I still have a job to do here, right? Because that can play so much on a person's psyche, right? But, but how did you navigate through that at that moment, G? And man, nobody ever talks about the mental space of an athlete when they are in the pinnacle of a moment that they're supposed to perform well. There's still yeah. pressures, there's still nerves, um, but you're also trying to navigate through, man, when the games is done, I have to go back home to real life and my real life may not be stable. How did you navigate through all of these emotions and this feeling during this time in your life? And obviously, you know, what did it feel like to win, to win the gold? What if you like right. to break the medal? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it certainly was like a really, really dark time. And I think reflecting on uh, winning and being a part of a winning team at the Olympic Games Anytime I reflect on that, I also reflect on, on, on the path and the journey from what I was dealing with in Austin, Texas, all the way up to Atlanta and then beyond. And I'll tell you, having, having teammates, I think in, in this instance, Donovan was huge. Um, he really, you know, at our Canadian championships, and he was aware of some of the things that I was dealing with when I came up to Montreal, uh, because we were training together in Austin. And, you know, I remember, I remember he said to me, as we were warming up, he's like, okay, G, you got to put all this stuff behind you. We've got two days here. You got to run a hundred. You got to, you know, we've got, we've got to get through the hundred. We got to get, we got to get named to the, well, I had to get named to the team. I mean, he was doing pretty good for himself, you know, so it, that wasn't the issue, but he was more concerned at the time with making sure that I kind of parked that, that personal stuff and focus here in this moment on, um, on trying to make the Atlanta, the Atlanta Olympic team. So I got through that and I'll tell you, it was, it was probably easily the darkest, um, time in my life. And I got through that, got to the Olympics, certainly did not perform in the open hundred the way I had expected to perform. But again, you know, I, I had to reconcile that that was the path I was on and there was no real way around it. It wasn't that I was out there trying to not make a final. <laughs> I was trying to make the final. That was a, that was the plan. Right. So yeah. when that didn't happen, I remember being so, I was, it was like, you just, to say I was winded, I was, I was beyond, it was the darkest and lowest time I've ever experienced as an athlete. I got, I remember getting back to our, um, our accommodations, which are in Buckhead. And I went into my room and I was, I probably stayed, I think I stayed in the room for two days. And I remember Dan came up to the room one, one, um, one day and just knocked and handed me a book. It was called out of the darkness into the light. I can't remember who the author is. I remember the name because I, I sat in that room and it was like a 300 page book and I read through the book and the wow. story of this individual in the book really reset my thinking. It really helped me. It, 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 it showed me that I'm not the only one that is going through struggles. I'm not, I'm not the first one. I'm certainly won't be the last one. And, and you've got to get to the other side of it. And how do you get there? Positive, like just change your mindset, change because I was going home. I was done after the hundred. I was like, I'm not, 
you know, I'm so frustrated and so disappointed with the sport. I need to get out of here. And uh, after reading this book and basically recalibrating my thinking, I was now focused on getting ready with my teammates um, for the Olympic Games and, and, and for the relay event specifically. Um, and after we won, I'll tell you, it, even though it was the most amazing period in my sporting career, I was still bogged down with a lot of emotions from everything that, that had happened. And I really don't think, even to this day, as I you know, think about us at the Olympics, anytime I see pictures of us on the podium or walking out to get our medals, this, that, and the other, it's the one thing that's always on my mind because I knew exactly, you know, how many times can you say, I know exactly what I was thinking in that moment? Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. few people can say that, but I can tell you from start to finish what was on my mind and what was going on with me, but because I was wearing it and I see the pictures, I see the videos and I'm like, yeah, I was wearing all of it. And I think in time, it just, of, of course, um, winning the medal was was it was a dream come true because it was something that I had set out to do since I was 15, since I started track and field. And I think it um, having that experience, having been able to to share that experience with a bunch of people has been the most amazing accomplishment in my life from uh, an athletic standpoint. And, you know, it took some time after that to to really reconcile what we were able to accomplish and all the people that rallied around me to support me through that, that journey to get there. Gee, thanks for sharing that, man. Um, you know, I think, uh, I don't think a lot of people understand what, obviously you see athletes and sometimes they're perceived as superheroes in a way, right? But even Superman has kryptonite, you know? <laughs> so, uh, last question, G, before the, the little fun five questions, you know, with the height of everything that's been going on these past couple of years, man, um, people's mental spaces have been taking a big hit. Uh, life, when Murphy's Law, you know, when things hit you, more things are going to continue to hit yeah. you, G. But if there was one word of advice or something that you would give to help someone who may be in that dark place, in that dark space, what would you say to them? What are some words that you would give them to help uplift their spirits, to help them get out of that space and continue moving? You know what? I, I would tell anybody who's struggling and, and dealing, it's, it's going to get better. I mean, I, I know it, it seems now that it's the, the, the darkest before the storm, but then the storm happens, but then it clears and it gets better. Some of this stuff, I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of our athletes are struggling. You reach out to... There's a lot of services, there's a lot of stuff out there now that you can access, but some of this stuff also makes you better. So you just have to recognize that, yeah, it's it's tough now, but it's going to get better. Like I, I can, I mean, we've scratched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to, you know, you know, my testimony as a, as a, an individual who traveled kind of a bit of a journeyman's uh, pace to where I am now. And when I started this, nobody could tell me I'd be sitting here having this conversation with you now. So that's how I know it does get better. You just have to stick in there long enough to just navigate through it. It gets better. And we can, um, and we can, we can trust that it will. We just have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and just, and just weathering it, surround, surrounding yourself with, with positive people, with people that's got your back, people that care about you. Those things, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to come out on the other end of it. And you know what? You're going to have an amazing story to tell to anyone, a story of survival, perseverance, you know, and really sticking to something and getting through it and being successful on the other end of it. You know, it's funny you say that. I have like, uh, when you talk about scratching the surface, I have like 50 questions other that I have and the ones that I asked today. But, you know, the time doesn't always permit it. But obviously another time, you know, when the studio comes to fruition. <laughs> but last fun five questions, you shouldn't be too taxing, you know, but sometimes some people struggle with them a little bit. But here okay. we go. you ready to go? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Question one, G, if you were trapped on a deserted island for a week, like Tom Hanks and Castaway, right? What are three things that you would take with you? <laughs> a raft? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, three things I would take with me on a deserted island. I'd probably take a fire starter. <laughs> I'd take um, shit. Oh man, that is a tough one. Jeez. <laughs> uh, um, jeez, um, I don't know. That's 
Akeem, that's a tough one. <laughs> like, what could I do? I take anything? Yeah, yeah, anything. I asked, I asked, I asked the okay. fellas on here, uh, 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 the 2016 four by one group, and and Dre said bug spray. I'm like, man, that, <laughs> you're gonna waste your thing on the bug spray. <laughs> okay, so anything I could I could take with me. Okay, I'll take on a deserted island for how long? A week. A week. Okay, I would take I would take a Wonder Bar mm. because I have an affinity for Wonder Bars. I would take. Um, I, yeah, I certainly would not take my phone. Um, I would take clean drinking water. Mm. Okay. And I would take um, materials to make like a lean to. Okay. Okay. Two, gee, you know, you know, us sprinters, you know, we like to eat, you know, we like to eat good too. What is one meal that you could eat every day for a month if you had to? You know what? I think, um, I like Aki and Selfish. Oh, come on, G. Come on now. And fried dumplings. Yeah, I can probably eat that. <laughs> I see the look on your face. You're about to have some today. <laughs> I'm telling you, I would eat that every single day for every single day if I could. You know, uh, question three, G. I, I really value time. I think time is one of the most precious commodity that we really have to be conscious of how we spend it, whom we spend it with. If you could sit down in a room, G, and spend a f- five uninterrupted hours with five people, past or present, who 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 would you want to sit down with? One would be my high school or my public school principal, Mr. Mr. Monroe, who passed away. The second one would be my um, my youngest brother, Bruce, who passed away when he was fourteen. Mm. Um, I would love to sit in a room with, uh, unfortunately, these people are no, no longer here. I would love to sit in a room with my father and speak to him for five uninterrupted hours. Mm. I would love to just sit there with my mom. Again, we have times that are fleeting here, there, but my mom would be key to that. And the other one would be my kids. Wow. Wow. Quietly with them. wow. Wow. I, I, I don't want to be a, a fly on the wall with that one. You know, I feel like there's just so much wisdom, right? And a whole bunch of things that go with it. Um, well, that just brought me to another question, but I'll save that one. Uh, G, question four, man. You know, 1996, you guys got gold. You broke the Canadian world, or you broke the Canadian record, had the world record at the time, correct? For a little bit? Uh, no, no, no. We just had, no, it was just a Canadian record. They speculate what could, <laughs> but it, that's speculation. We know that. <laughs> broke the Kenya record 2016 g we broke the record right my 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 quartet broke the record in a two-lane race g who's winning is it is, yeah. it, is it your squad <laughs> or, is, or, or is it my squad and it's no no no, no, no 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 in a two-lane race you guys are done you guys are <laughs> in a two-lane race it is over no way. No, 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 no. We're not losing. We're not. This time, Donovan would keep the baton and run through the line. So, no, we're not losing. I don't know. If Andre got out on, 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 on the anchor leg, hey, we, I guess that is the speculation of something <laughs> that is never going to happen, right? Well, at the end of the day, too, you guys broke the record. So, really, all of this is, <laughs> all of this is conjecture, right? So... <laughs> last last question you know with with everything that you've been been through and able to overcome you know you just spoke about the loss of your brother um at 14 that brings a whole whirlwind of questions for me and um but it's not easy to deal with it's hard you know i don't think we ever i don't think that stuff ever gets easier we just learn how to deal with it a little better Mm -hmm. but you've been through a lot in your life and you're still growing still progressing if there was one word to describe you, G, what would that one word be? And give me one or two sentences behind why that one word for you. I One word would be blessed. You know, I really think that I am blessed. I, I've, you know, I've, I've run the gauntlet in a lot of ways in a lot of different situations, but always seem to come out on the other end of it ahead. Right. And, and it and marginally ahead, but ahead of where I was in terms of 
the person that I am. Um, it could be just like internally. Um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for so many things. I'm grateful for so many people. I don't have any real thing to be complaining about. We all, we can always complain about little things all over the place, but really like my mom said to me the other day, she said, you know, um, you know, I pray every day that God blesses you and takes care of you. Like your parents, that's wow. what they want, right? And I told her, I said, Mom, I'm blessed now. I don't, this is not something that's going to happen in the future. This is happening to me right now. So I don't, I feel that God has done that. I feel that I've gone through a lot of different scenarios and I've dealt with a lot of different people with a lot of different intentions that on the other side of it, I've been able to come out a little bit ahead. I'm not stuck in that situation. And it's made me, like, again, it's helped me in a lot of ways. G, thank you so much for your time, man. You know, you've, you've, you've always been good to me. You've always, uh, you've always gave me a straight answer. Uh, <laughs> if you didn't know something, you said, Keem, I don't know. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you always gave me a straight answer. And I always appreciated that, you know, because sometimes a lot of people don't really do that. Um, but thank you again for your time, G. I appreciate it, man. Um, and hopefully we can do a part two in the future, you know, when uh, when the good Lord blesses me with the studio to make it all come to fruition. <laughs> well, you know what, Akeem, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Continue doing what you're doing. I do follow some of your stuff. I'm on there checking it out, hearing what you've got to say. You're inspiring people, which is the right thing to be doing. And I think your story, um, your experiences, all those things come to bear. And I'm, And even if... People listen to everything you say and they can take a nugget out of it to put to put into their own lives to better themselves in the future. You're doing you're doing some good work. Continue doing it. Okay, and all the very best. I know you're getting ready to get married and a new uh, you know um, part new journey in life. I think all of that is fantastic stuff. All the very best in the future. G, thank you so much, man. Let's uh, let's stay in touch. All right, for sure. All right, G.